And the real story of Blockware is I went home that afternoon. I was like, I'm launching a consulting firm to help companies figure out Ethereum. Hours after learning about Ethereum. <laughs> I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Um, all right, we're live. This is it. This is how we start, man. We get in. You just rip into it, huh? We get right into it. Where are you calling from? Your place looks nice. Is this your apartment? Yeah. Yeah, this is Blockworks office. Yeah, we got a new office like uh, about a year ago in Manhattan. How many, um, how many people do you have? Like 60? Uh, I think we're up to 65, maybe. We had six people start this week. So I think, I think that might put us at 65. What's the pitch for what you are? You're just, uh, I mean, at, at the high level, a crypto media company. But at, what did I tell you the other day? I go, you do everything right. You do things the right way. Wait, let me just get this straight. So is Sean not joining us? Because do you know that Sean told, Sean DM'd me one day. He gave me his cell phone. He said, dude, hit me up. Would love to meet and chat. I've never met the guy. I, he, he gives me his cell phone. I text him. I go, yo, it's Jason Yanos. What's up, man? I said something about friend tech. Guy ghosted me, never just left me on red. Really? So this was going to be my time on air to call out Sean, but alas. Well, you call them out. No, Sean's out. Sean's getting a, a nose job. He's out with surgery this week. Really? Yeah, but but he'll he'll hear this. All right. Sean's a ghoster, man. Sean is a ghoster. I give him a hard for. I give him a hard time for that. Mm. But you know, he brings the heat, so he, he gets a pass. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. There's no secret formula for customer service, but there is an all new service hub from HubSpot and it's bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible. You can free up your customer support reps time with an AI powered help desk so you can easily support and grow your customer base. The secrets out service hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn more. So what are we talking today? I don't know, man. Tell people like you're under the radar, but your business is shockingly big and I think it's going to be incredibly successful. What do you what's like the pitch for what Blockworks is? Blockworks started 6 years ago. So my co-founder Mike and I started it in December of 2017. Basically the thesis back then which remains the same. I think we've got a lot wrong over the years, but one thing we got really right was the thesis uh which is that crypto as an asset class and as an industry is going to grow exponentially over the coming years. And this was back in 2017 when most of the information about the asset class was basically like siloed on Reddit and Twitter. And our thesis was that as the industry grew exponentially, those investors who, and professionals who came into the industry, they weren't going to you know, listen to crypto panda or like crypto whale about this new asset class. They wanted this professional source of information kind of like a Bloomberg or a Wall Street Journal for crypto. So yeah, we said, hey, let's go build it. And that was six years ago. So what we've built is basically, for the first five years, we built a media media platform, media company, right? We own the largest network of podcasts in the industry. We have a couple of big newsletters. We have, uh, I think, the best team of reporters uh, and you know journalists in the industry. We own a couple of the large conferences in the industry. And we've built this big media company. And a year ago, we thought the industry was ready for like deeper what I call almost like bottom of the funnel information about crypto, data, analytics, research, protocol governance. And that is our subscription platform that we launched called Blockworks Research. So that was a year ago. So that's what, yeah, we're, we're a media and information platform just about crypto, crypto native media and information company. Do you say how big you are? Did you see the research, my guy? I, so I have Eugenio, he's my, uh, yeah. he, he like had your revenue and EBITDA. Was that all correct? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I like he's doing like, he's, that guy's digging. He said in 2023, you're going to do 25 million in revenue with 8 million in EBITDA. He says 
2022, you did 25 and 7 million in EBITDA. Is that right? I'm not going to say specific numbers, but what I will say is, yeah, last year we had a goal of uh, 20 million in revenue and we pretty decently exceeded that. Um, and we've been profitable since day one. So yeah, we, we bootstrapped the business for the first five and a half years. And then back in April or May, we took, uh, we raised our first outside round of capital from, from 10T and Framework and, and uh, this angel Santiago. So we raised 12 million bucks at a 135 valuation. Um, and yeah, we've been profitable since then. So, I mean, kind of since we started, we did a decent bit of EBITDA last year. This year, uh, those numbers are wrong because this year, just to kind of share a little bit of insights into like the crypto market, I don't know how, I, th I think you follow it pretty closely, Sam. The market's just gotten crushed, right? So what's actually done really well for us this year is our subscription revenue on the research platform, but the ad market across the board, both in crypto and digital media, if you probably talked to the Morning Brew guys or you probably saw the BuzzFeed numbers because they're public, like it's gotten, it's, it's, uh, it's been a tougher year than last year on the ad market. Is it coming back now? It's the ad market is just starting to come back. Yeah. But you guys crushed it on conferences. I mean, I went to your conference. What did you have? 5,000 people there? The conference, the final number was a little above 4,000 this year. Yeah. I mean, that was amazing. You, it seems like you yeah. killed it there. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that like I'm a media nerd. I, I think that everyone who has a media business ever works in the media business, they hate it and they love it. Uh, I hate it, <laughs> but it's like an art that I'm addicted to. Um, I hate selling ads, but I love creating media. And when I look at, you know, media is an interesting business because the barrier to entry is really low, particularly for the written word. Well, even for podcasts, everyone can write. Therefore, everyone, the, the pool of people who think they're good writers is significantly higher than like building some other type right. of business. Um, and I think that most people do it really poorly, myself included. I made a lot of mistakes, but... Whenever I like you're telling me about your guys' business, I'm like, oh, I see a well, from an outside, I see a crystal clear path to like a hundred million in sales. Um, you just do the same shit, but more and more. And you just are thoughtful, man. You do things right. Uh, and I, I think that you're one of the more under the radar operators in the space. Thanks, man. That's why I think a digital media business is actually one of the best businesses to start. It's not gonna make you a billionaire. There's no like go start, you had the you had the 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 flying guy on the podcast the other day. Like Brett, that's what you'd go Brett. do if you want to be a billionaire. Like a digital media brand, I think is like the best venture into entrepreneurship for first time founders. And Mike and I, like Mike and I were just roommates at the time. And we were 23 when we launched the business. We basically just work. We'd wake up at like 4 a.m. We'd jump on LinkedIn. We had no media business. We didn't even know what media was. We just, we just wanted to host an event because we went to an event, realized they made like 5,000 bucks. That was big money to us. And so we just jumped on LinkedIn. Every morning we would wake up and just send like 300 messages, right? 10% of those people reply, that's 30. You get like three out of the 30 to actually buy a ticket. Our first event, February 2018, we had 220 people and we made top line 12,000 bucks, I think it was. And so we're, that's, that's off to the races. And then we ended up building the, a media company basically ass backwards, right? Like how you probably started at The Hustle was with content. Yeah, you, you, you did it horribly. Horribly, horribly, horribly. I would argue, though, like the problem with most media companies and the reason they don't work is because they're started by folks who can't monetize. So they're usually started yeah. by a podcast host or a newsletter writer in 2023, and they're brilliant at content and they don't understand how to sell. So what happens is they're a year and a half in, they're like, oh shit, I need to monetize. And they don't know how to build a business, they know how to create great content. And for us, 
we did events. Then we linked up with Pomp, right? And we that we got into the podcasting game. So our first podcast was Pomp's, well, it used to be called Off the Chain. Now it's called the Pomp Podcast. But you were just selling ads for him, right? We were doing everything. I would go into Pomp's office seven days a week, Saturdays and Sundays too. I would put the mic in front of his face. I learned how to use GarageBand. I was editing the podcast. I was producing the podcast. We were designing the things on 99designs. I was selling the sponsorships. We were doing all of it. Um, and then we built that business out and hosted shows for other people. Realized that business was great for revenue, sucked for IP because we don't actually own the content. Yeah, you're just an agency. Yeah, then COVID hit and 80% of our revenue got wiped out overnight because we were 80% of revenue came from events. And then that's when we pivoted into like, we said, let's, let's go do the media thing. How much can you say how many how many uh how much in sales your your like one event would do? Um yeah, our biggest one, I mean last year we did wh- like well over 10 million from permissionless. Dude, that's insane, man. My whole thing with events was I started with HustleCon. HustleCon I so I did it the same thing as you where I, like I threw it together and hosted it in 6 weeks. I think the first time I did it, I think it did 50,000 in revenue and like 20,000 in profit. The second time I did it, I think it did 160,000 in revenue and 50,000 in profit maybe. And then the third and fourth time it varied between like 500,000 and a million, I think, in sales. And then I don't remember what the profit was, but the margins got smaller. And events were hard. I was like, I know these events can get big, but I screwed it up because what I did was I made the event about I just like looked at like I had never been to conferences. I just looked at what a TED talk was and I was like, I'm just gonna do that. I'm just gonna get people on a stage and people are gonna sit in the audience and like listen to this. That was really dumb. For from a money making point of view, that was a really stupid thing to do. And I knew that some of these events were doing like tens of millions in sales, and I totally screwed it up. The the way that you really make revenue and income through these events is the speakers are simply a way to get the similar like-minded people in the in the audience and you make money right. through more expensive ticket sales because you're doing networking and you make money not through sponsorships people call them sponsorships but like through like a booth so they could actually it, like it's basically just a marketplace that day where like you have to make people are making deals conferences are basically just uh three-day marketplaces where you build the marketplace and you shut it down three days later and that's what the show floor is sheldon adelson so there's a guy named sheldon i think his name's sheldon adelson he might have just died he started this thing called uh, Comdex, I think it was. And it was eventually turned into CES. I think it like uh, rebranded. But anyway, he created this conference called Comdex. And it was like the computer show or something. A computer. It was right when computers were getting popular in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. He built it up. He actually sold it for a billion dollars. But Sheldon Adelson's the guy who basically made the Vegas Strip. Like it made it happening. Because what he noticed was he goes, Oh wow! This conference. I'm basically just creating like a. It's basically a real estate business because I'm creating a marketplace and I'm like a merchant in the sense of like I'm selling like corner space because that's the best space. Then I'm selling this space and like marketplace. It's a marketplace for those few days. And then he was like, "Well, shit! I'm just going to get in the real estate industry because he saw like loads of different parallels." And uh, anyway, when I like read that, I was already like pretty deep into like my one big event, and I was like, "Shit! I did this all wrong." You know what I mean? I don't even think you did it wrong. You just needed to go bigger. So the secret with events, so we started with small events. The thing that a lot of entrepreneurs get wrong with events is the business model of small events is a is a really good experience for attendees. It's really fun. You bring people together, good community building. It is a shit business model. So the 
kind of secret to events is you need to figure out how to go really big and go bigger and bigger and bigger. And what we found out, some early insights was, let's say you have a company like uh, like Coinbase, right? And Coinbase might pay us a million dollars to sponsor our conference. If we launched another conference, they're not going to go pay us two million. They're going to take that million that they allocate to their BlockWorks conference budget, and they're going to cut it in half. So then they're spending 500 with us here and 500 with us here. So but we're doing twice the work, right? To go run two conferences. So we basically consolidated all of our things. We now just have two conferences, Digital Asset Summit and Permissionless. And the reason for that is like, that is the best business model for conferences. Is bigger is better. What's really tough is um, big conferences, you have to plan out years in advance. So our events team would like us to book venues like four or five years out. We can't do that because crypto is too cyclical. So we, but we still have to like, I think we just booked our 2026 venue or, or, or we're like about, we have, we, have the, we have the contract for them. So, and why that's really tough for our business is because crypto is so cyclical. And if you think you're planning a big event, but you don't end up having, you're not able to host the big event, you can crush your business, right? Coindesk almost died in 2019 because of that reason. Um, they had like, I don't know, 10,000 plus people in 2018. And then in 2019, they fell to like 2,000 people, right? They fell 80%. And that almost wiped out their whole business. And their takeaway from that was, hey, maybe events, big events aren't going to come back. Big events aren't going to be big. Like crypto events just aren't going to be big again. And what happened is you end up losing money on the upside. When the, when the market comes back, you lose money on the upside. So for us, like, it's just a big challenge to running a, a conference business in such a cyclical industry is you have to plan these things years in advance, but then you're basically act, asking yourself to like predict market cycles. Very tough thing to do. But you're big enough now that like you said that like cities are like courting you, right? Yeah, cities, the bigger your conference gets, the more GDP you bring into a city. So I forget the, I forget the specific number, but I think for Palm Beach last year, we brought in like I don't know, three or four or five or six million dollars of GDP to Palm Beach just in those three days. So they, so they're the mayor of Palm Beach came to our conference. He really wanted us to come back. Um, and the bigger your conference gets, the more cities and then even countries will court, like countries will court like Web Summit and Money 2020 and folks like that. And they'll give them big upfronts. How much do you think that upfront was for a Web Summit? Web Summit has what, 50,000 people? Yeah, a couple couple million, probably, I don't know, five five million, maybe ta- maybe some money in tax credits. That's insane, man. I um, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I I I haven't cracked the code for an event, but you have. That's why uh, that's why I like hanging out with you. But like, it's freaking stressful. It is stressful. That's one of the reasons why I hate events. Yeah, fifty percent of tickets get sold in the four in the four weeks leading up to a conference. So imagine the fifth week out from a conference, you're basically thinking that. 50% of your attendees aren't coming. And you know it because we have six years of data that they're going to come, but it's stressful. But ultimately, the conference serves as like, it's the reason we were able to bootstrap the business, right? It serves as like the cash flow into the podcasts and into the research business and into the digital and news and all that stuff. And uh, another thing that I like about hanging out with you, so like basically for the listener, I uh, I spent my summers in Brooklyn. One year, Jason was like, hey, there's this uh, apartment in my building that's available. You want to rent it out? And I was like, hell yeah. So I lived three floors below you for about four months, hung out with you a bunch. And 
an interesting thing about you is you're one of the better storytellers I've ever hung out with. Sean, Sean Perry, partner Sean, awesome at awesome at telling stories. You've you've told some of the craziest stories I've ever heard of. Particularly one about when you like won a did you win a Corvette? Oh man. So I was super nervous. I was nervous for this podcast, not because I'm nervous to go on podcasts, but uh, I was telling Dana last night, I was like, I'm actually pretty nervous for this podcast. Sam knows too much about me to, to make this. this I'll, give you, I'll, give you, I'll give you a pass on anything. Anything you don't want to talk about. You don't, and I asked you ahead of time. I, I said, what don't you want to talk about? I'll share anything. I think Sean and I joke. We're like, if you were like really good at gaming, if you were like good at poker, if you like were a hacker, if you did like most people, not most, but a lot of people who end up with like huge amounts of financial success, they were doing something like gray early in their career before they realized like, oh, I should like follow the book and like do things by the rules because that is way better for long term success. But they had that like gene in them. A hundred percent. You told this story. And when I heard that story, I was like, oh, yeah, like it would have been obvious at the age of 16 or 18 that you were going to be like a massive success when, when you told me this story. It was one of the crazier things I've ever heard of. I'll tell I'll tell an abbreviated version because I don't I don't think it's as interesting as you do. But I've always had this kind of it like is. entrepreneurial. Don't don't give yeah. me the abbreviated version. I've always had this entrepreneurial tick. Like I um my parents shared this story with me the other day. I guess when I was in like fourth or fifth or sixth grade or something, I would buy. This is not the story. I'll get to the story, but I would buy. Uh, MLB showdown cards on eBay that I thought they were marketing it poorly. And like maybe the picture was bad or the description was bad. I'd buy the MLB showdown cards. I'd take a nicer picture with a nice camera, re-upload the this exact same card to, to eBay with just a better picture and better marketing copy and sell it for like 2x what we bought it, what I bought it for. So I've always had that kind of bent. This um has pulled me down good rabbit holes like that or like Blockworks and then some less good rabbit holes, which I think is the story you're getting to. Um Summer after senior year of high school, I, summer after senior year of high school, I wanted some money, some summer money. So I went to my parents and was like, hey, can I get some money? I'm in high school. I don't have a job. Let me get some money. They're like, you're not, you're not getting money. We're not giving you money. Uh, go, my, I remember my mom said, I think your friend Jake is getting a job at Taco Bell. Go work with Jake at Taco Bell. I said, I'm not going to Taco Bell. And we, we would go to Taco Bell every day. I love Taco Bell. And um, so I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not working at Taco Bell. So my buddy was a year above me in school and he would, he worked, uh, he went to school at the University of Hawaii and he was back from his freshman year of college. He's like, Hey, I heard about this thing where it was actually the Soylent podcast guy uh, or the Soylent guy brought it up on his, on your podcast with him. It's, he's like, most companies spend like 40% of their budget on marketing these, there are another com- type of company that spends zero on marketing, 40% on affiliates who market their products for them. And that was kind of the pitch that my buddy gave me. He's like, if you are able to sell this energy drink to other people, you can make money. You get like a percentage of what they make. And again, I'm 18. I didn't know anything. I just wanted money and I didn't want to work at Taco Bell. So I signed up. I bought like 30 energy drinks and started telling people <laughs> that like, hey, you drink Red Bull and Monster. You should, you shouldn't do that. You should buy these healthy energy drinks from me. Go, you go to like Yenowitz dot, you know, the web, the website.com. And uh, anyways, I, I, I did it for a couple of months. Didn't make any money. I get to college. I went to Emory down in Atlanta and uh, I really didn't want to be like the, 
energy drink guy. You know, I'm trying to be like cool on campus, freshman. Didn't want, didn't want to be like the energy drink guy. And uh, I talked to some friends. They didn't want to do it. But then I discovered like digital marketing and actually like Noah Kagan and like all those people, like that whole crowd, they were kind of booming back in the day. Like they were just kind of finding some success and found that whole crowd of like that guy Branson something. or, or Russell Brunson. Yeah, figured out how to create landing pages, um, went super deep down that rabbit hole, and the business got crazy. So you got paid like a percentage. This is where I didn't realize what I was doing. Looking back, there's a lot of like, I'm not sure if I would do this. Well, I, I probably wouldn't do this again. I actually think about like, would I let my kid do this um, in the future? But yeah, I ended up having 4,600 people in my downline, had like 1,000 people in France. Um you know, because it was a, it was a, it wasn't that you were making money just from selling this drink. You were making money from enlisting people to sell it for you. So basically, it was a pyramid yeah, scheme, multi multi level marketing. Yeah, you told the story. You're like, you, I told my parents what I was doing, and they're like, Jason, you know, this is a a multi level marketing. And you're like, what do you mean? I, I'm just selling a drink. Like you didn't even know what that meant, right? I so this company was the like official sponsor of the Phoenix Suns. Doctor Oz was on my. If any of my friends from college are listening to this, they're going to laugh at this because they have heard this pitch probably a thousand times. I used to like get on Skype. It wasn't Zoom back then. It was Skype, and I'd give this pitch to like a room of five hundred people. Like Doctor Oz says that you know a can of can of this and a handful of almonds is the healthiest thing that you can put in your body. Blah blah. So they had all these big names. I had no idea. I really fell for the pitch that it was like look, a lot of companies like a Nike spends billions on marketing. Why don't they just spend billions giving it to when Sam tells me about Nike, they should give Sam like 10% of that, 10% of that. What I didn't realize was there's all these companies, there's this multi-level market. I didn't realize that there's this whole industry and it wasn't until, well, to, to bring this story home and the, and the car, it wasn't a Corvette, it was a BMW. I got so high up in this company or had so many people below me. The company gave me a BMW uh, my sophomore year of college. I, I tried dropping out my sophomore year, got like a 2.2 or 2.4 GPA. My, obviously, my parents wouldn't let me. They knew they, they were like, I later learned that it was a big debate my parents had about whether or not to let me keep doing this. My mom wanted to shut it down from day one. And my dad was like, it'll teach him a good lesson. I don't think they, really, I don't think they thought I was going to be successful. But it wasn't until uh, Bill Ackman and Carl Icahn got into that really crazy battle over Herbalife. And I yeah. watched the full thing. I watched the whole presentation by Bill Ackman that I realized, I was like, oh my God, he is explaining this company that I work, <laughs> that I'm working with. And, uh, and, then my, and then my roommate junior year, like one of my best friends, like basically slapped me in the face junior year. He's like, all right, man, we're going to get internships. You should join us. Uh, stop doing this. Stop doing this thing. And, and, we sh and it shut down. So you, what is it? How much money do you make if you have 4,000 people on your like downline or whatever it's called? I, I was making probably a thousand, fifteen hundred bucks a week as a sophomore. But, don't, but that's 4,000 people is a shitload of people. I would have thought you'd make way more. There were people making millions a year who had like if there, I probably had 4,000 on one side, like 600 on the other. If my sides were like even, then, um, then it would, I guess they probably did some model internally that was like made the company more sustainable if it was like even. So yeah, that's, so that's what it was. But I was, I mean, for, I was 19, right? I was a year and a half after wanting to work at Taco Bell or not wanting to work at Taco Bell. So like that was crazy, crazy, crazy money for me.
And you're just like giving speeches in front of hundreds of people on Skype about why this drink is is awesome or why the business is awesome. <laughs> Basically, the pit, yeah, what, kind of both. Like the so the difference between so you brought up pyramid scheme. The like technical difference as the regulators see it between a multi level marketing company, which is I would call very shady but technically legal, versus a pyramid scheme, which is illegal, is the percentage of people who buy the product for the product ex- itself versus the number of people, the percentage of people who buy the product just to get access to be able to sell it and make more money. So that's the like the reason something like Amway or like Herbalife can be still exist is because there's actually a pretty high percentage of people who just buy the products because they like the products or like Cutco knives and all those. So yeah, Cutco company- knives is a, is a multi-level market. I mean, I've got a ton of friends that sold Cutco knives. And you know what's crazy? They all say awesome stuff about the product. So like an MLM isn't inherently unethical. Right. I think like, wasn't like Tupperware like so, uh, so this company, an MLM? So this company had been around for 10 years. That was the other thing. It had been around for like 10 or 11 or 12 years. And they sold to like 50 and 60 year olds who wanted to get like protein shakes and all that stuff. And it was a really good product. And nobody did the money part of it. They just got it and they might tell some friends. But like most people who use Amway products, they don't tell their friends about it. They just actually like the products. So that was this company. And then they realized, hey, who wants money more than anyone? Like 19-year-old kids. So they launched, and what do 19-year-old kids drink? They drink energy drinks. So that's when they launched that. They did flashy marketing. They sponsored the Suns. They got Dr. Oz as a spokesperson, all this stuff. And that's when it really, that's when the percentage of people buying the product for the, to make money started to outweigh the number of people buying the product for the for the drink. Itself. How big was that company? I don't know. I don't I don't have metrics. The CEO I think went to jail for a year or two though. Oh my god. That's <laughs> well, I have a lot charge? of like I this is one of the things like I actually I wasn't even sure I wanted to talk about it on the podcast today because I have a lot of not regret but like it is inherently kind of a shady thing to talk about, right? It's like Multi-level marketing is a shady thing. And I didn't realize it at the time. I truly I truly had no idea. I'd like drank the Kool-Aid so hard. I really had no idea. And the debate I have, I don't have any kids, but if I had a kid, would I let my kid do this? And the immediate answer is no. Like that is this super shady, no. But it did teach, I, I, I know for a fact I would not be here today if I hadn't done that. Why is that? Blockwork started by just me posting on LinkedIn a lot about crypto. And nobody was posting on social. Nobody was posting on LinkedIn back then. Like, it gave me the confidence to post on social a lot. It gave me the, like, understanding that mo- does, like, most of growing a business at the beginning is just, like, grit and hustle and really marketing and sales. It's less product. Eventually, that changes over time as you find product market fit and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it just taught me this, like, it it made me realize that I, there was nothing in the world I wanted to do outside of build a company. And it gave me the, I, like, I didn't, I didn't know how to build a software company. Like, you have some, like, geniuses come on the show, like, they're coders. Like, I wasn't like that. Um, and it just gave me the confidence to go do it. 
Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. It is a podcast that we want you to check out. It's called D2C Pod. It's hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas. It is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. And this is a podcast about all things direct-to-consumer, D2C. It's e-commerce stores. It's how you optimize your brand. And they're talking with founders, marketers, and the platform creators about all kinds of things that you need to know for D2C. You know, website conversion, paid ads, Facebook ads, consumer trends, email marketing, If you want to know the stories behind your favorite brands, this podcast is for you. They did an episode recently about scaling creator growth and influencer incentives. I thought it's pretty cool. So check it out. Listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Were you you thinking about any other different ideas before you started BlockWorks? Um, Yeah, I was desperate for something. I was really desperate for to do something, but I had a bunch of shit ideas. Um, I the way BlockWorks originally started. Who's the consultant that you had on the show? Ovens. So, Sam Ovens. Yeah. So the way yeah. Blockwork started, Sam Ovens plays a role. I wanted to start a consulting practice because I saw I read Sam Ovens' stuff and I like I didn't buy his course, but I saw all of his ads and I was like, this dude's making it. It was funny hearing that like New York photo shoot that he did. You know what I'm talking about? I like remember seeing that ad. I was like, obviously now I know how the game works. That wasn't a real thing. But he I I wanted to like do what Sam Ovens did, start a consulting firm. By the way, Sam Ovens is this guy who came on our pod. Nowadays, he's like a really nerdy, like almost like an intellectual. He started a software company and he's doing everything right. But previously, he started this thing called consulting.com. He rented out this slick apartment, slicked back his hair, wore a bright blue blazer. And I don't think he did anything unethical. But he was um, like selling the dream. He was like, I started a consulting business that makes money. I'm going to teach you how to do that too for this amount of money. And he came on our pod and he was like, I don't remember exactly what he said, but I think the energy that I got from him was, he's like, I don't regret doing that because I helped a lot of people, but I was playing a part that wasn't authentic to me and I got bummed out. Maybe, Maybe there was a little like regret. He's like, I fucking played a part. Like I was an actor. And I don't think he regrets it because right. I don't think he did anything wrong, but he just pushed it to the to the limit. Yeah. So I saw those ads. I, that's what I wanted to do. I was like really sick of my job. I wanted to do that. And so I so the, uh, I used to go to this thing called brunch work or something in New York. I don't think they exist anymore, but I'd go to all these events. They had a thing on how to build a consulting firm at 2 p.m. on a Sunday. I think it was like 2 p.m. on a Sunday. They had a thing, how to build a consulting firm. I thought it was you just get sucked into these like scabs. <laughs> I, uh, let me uh, one day if you ever talk to Mike, he'll tell you about the uh, <laughs> the Jerry Seinfeld ticket ticket flipping scheme. Did not make money. Um, anyways, we uh, I get there an hour early because I thought it was at one p.m. and they were doing a talk on Ethereum, and I already knew about Bitcoin from since 2015. I was living in Budapest, heard about Bitcoin. 2017. This is 2017 now. Uh, got really into Ethereum from this talk. And so I decide I went, I came home that day, and the real story of Blockwork is I went home that afternoon. I was like, I'm launching a consulting firm to help companies figure out Ethereum. Hours after learning about Ethereum, <laughs> hours after I was like, <laughs> sold the dream. Yeah, um, I was like, this is what I've been looking for. Well, I, I you know I'd known about Bitcoin for two years. I was I was already like listening to Bitcoin podcasts and stuff, and like kind of had heard about Ethereum, but like didn't understand, didn't click, didn't get it, and. Uh, Came home and I was living with four guys at the time. And one of them was Mike, who's my co-founder. And I re- we remember it slightly differently. What I remember is him saying, let's do it. 
and then waking up in the morning and saying, hey, this is a horrible idea. I currently work in consulting. Nobody's going to buy consulting from us because they don't trust us. We're 23 years old. We need to build trust with the community. How do we do that? And I said, great. How do we do that? He said, what if we hosted events? We went to that event last month. That made some money. So we started hosting events to then try to sell consulting. And six years later, we have no consulting. But Dude, it's so funny. I think that like, all right, so Blackworks is going to be a huge success. I don't know what, how big, but I believe you're going to have a multi-hundred million dollar exit before the age of like 33, very likely. What are you, 28 now? 29. You're going to be, you're going to be worth at least $100 million in the next five years, I, I would imagine. Liquid. That, that's my prediction. But in order to get there, I think pe- what people like... We, Sean and I talk about this all the time. They're like, there's this always like revisionist history of like, oh, I had this great idea. When in reality, uh, like you just do dumbass like kind of meathead stuff and you just kind of can iterate your way. And then after like you get to like some type of sustainability and some type of mastery, you're like, okay, I actually clearly see the path now and like maybe i'll go back in time and say i I had this like revelation that we have to build this big thing you said your story earlier you're like i thought this i thought crypto was going to be a big thing but no one was covering it but in reality it was like ethereum sounds sick um i i I need a job um i'm just gonna host this event and see what happens like you know what i mean you just kind of like do shit and it works out sometimes there's always basically a, so like that is true what I said about like we had this vision that crypto would be this institutional asset class. Because once we said, hey, how do you host an event? What, what, what should we talk about? I think our first, talk, like one of our first events was like crypto and the institutional age of blockchain or something. Like we had that vision, right? But yeah, I think you are dead right. And I think that is a, almost a problem that gets pushed is that everybody thinks that founders had this vision from day one. But if you talk to founders who have built big companies, of them do not. They do. They never did at the beginning. Second time founders actually do. I've noticed like second time founders will, but mm, honestly, like a hundred percent of first time founders, there's no grand vision. It's this kind of, it's this like, how did Blockworks get built? I don't know. We took one foot in front of the other day after day and like slogged it out. And that's how you build your first company. Second company, I think is different. Second company can be like, uh, you know, robotics and like all this other shit, but that's you can have a grand vision, but not the first company. Yeah, I don't think it is. I think that um, I remember when I started my first, the very first thing I started, I was like, I want to start a newsletter, and then I had this horrible idea. I just read the biography of Ted Turner, and he like employed all these people, and I was like, that sounds amazing. I want to employ ten thousand people, and then I had like a team of ten, and I'm like. No, I, I definitely don't want 10,000 of these assholes <laughs> oh, hanging around. Like, this yeah. is just too hard. Great, like, great too many people. Yeah. yeah. And Love like, he, he inspired me. But I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want all these people. And, and I just made so many mistakes. But then the second or third time around, you definitely have a more clear vision. You also have more. Um, you have more. Uh, you have more wisdom. In, and that shows up in the sense of like, look, like, w- after we do this for like two or three years, I have a feeling we're going to be able to do this in like five years. Like you have a little bit more vision, but you know, it's still pretty murky, but you also have a lot more patience and trust in the, in the cycle or in the evolution because things evolve. But when you're first starting stuff, you like, you're like, this isn't even going to work to get to point B, let alone like thinking about point C and D. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. I think that's a big fallacy. And I think the other one is um, this idea that it gets easier as you grow. 
right? That's, um, I think anyone, startups are like this weird, or being a founder is this weird thing where like, I think what they, you kind of hold constant the rate at which you can tolerate problems and everything else kind of becomes this variable that moves. And you're always as a founder in this zone of max pain. And whenever you are able to, if you're ever below that threshold of max pain, you take on more stuff. And I think that is, that's something I thought at the beginning, which was like, when Blockworks hits 10 people, man, it'll be a lot easier. All right, when Blockworks hits like 30 people, a lot easier. And that's, um, I don't know, I was just listening to Patrick Collison, the founder of Stripe on a podcast. <laughs> that dude's in max pain right now. You think so? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He is reading between the lines of that company. It, he is in max pain and uh, doesn't get any easier. So do you, uh, have, you read the, have you read the Elon Musk biography? I'm reading right now. I'm like 200 pages in. I haven't started it yet, but I've, all my friends keep talking about it. And his life sounds miserable. He does. It does not. I wouldn't trade. I Horrible. wouldn't trade what he has for in a million years. I would. I. It sounds miserable. Um, yeah, like his personal life sounds awful. His professional life sounds awful. Everything about it sounds bad. It does not sound yeah. enjoyable in the slightest. Can I flip the script? Am I allowed to ask you a question here, Sam? This is a conversation. You guys were talking with the Soylent guy about like what you're optimizing for, basically. Um, and you guys are like, like some people optimize for money, right? Some people are optimizing for happiness. Some people are like, he said the things like, you, you know, every person has a duty to make a big impact on the world. So some people are, optimizing I, for I that. did not agree with him. I did not agree. No, with I know. Him. I know you called him out on that, but what are, what are you, cause you're doing Hampton again. You pro I don't, you probably have enough money where you could just sit on it and put it in some like treasuries for the rest of your life, but you're doing Hampton again. What are you optimizing for? I'm optimizing for fulfillment. So I'm so yeah. when I took time off after selling my first company, I was incredibly lonely. I was very. I, I think I think there. Scott Galloway talks about like a loneliness uh, epidemic, particularly amongst young men, and I I experienced that where I was like I'm just so alone. I, I feel alone. I, I feel like uh, quite unhappy. Um, I felt proud of my previous experience, but I I felt lonely, and so I started the business because I wanted um, a new challenge where like I just wanted to achieve something and I wanted to succeed at something. But more so, I wanted to be less lonely and I wanted to be in the trenches with the troops and like create something together. Um, I yeah. think that uh, young men, I, I imagine young women, but I'm a young man, so I only know that perspective, is that like I need something to chase after with a team of, of people who I enjoy being near. Um, and that's really what I was optimizing for. I'm also uh, optimizing for... Um, um, living life on my own terms um so mm. the reason why i'm not willing to do like this what john said he, what did he say he was like you got to build something big i'm like dude right. I, I don't want that because i feel like you're signing up you're signing up to, to live a life where you where you have so like there's like three things there's like what do you want to do what should you do and what do you have to do and i only want to spend my time doing like the things i have to do and the things i want to do I don't want to do things that I should do. So let's just say that you have a huge company with 10,000 employees. You have to do, you should be doing lots of meetings with them. You should be talking to your investors. I don't want to do any of that. There's shit in my life that I have to do, like no matter what. I'm okay with some of those, but I want to maximize my time for things that I want to do. And so that's kind of what I'm maximizing my life for is, is spending my time how I want to spend it, not 
things that I should be doing. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, it does make sense. And, and I think that when you sign up for those, I think that like Brett Avcock was on the pod yesterday or Monday, and he's this guy who goes big. The thing about him is I believe he's happy. Like he's doing what he wants to be doing. I listened. He sounds like it. And I'm happy that freaks like him exist, but I am not that person. I like I don't want to go into the warehouse that or his factory on a Sunday and like mess with robots. That's just not how I find fulfillment. I would rather read a book and be by myself on a Sunday. So yeah. like I I just don't I don't want to like sign up to those big uh, world changing ideas because I feel like you're obligating yourself to live a life for other people. Do you know what I mean? I do not even. Is that how you feel? Kind of. I think fulfillment's a good way to put it. But if I had to like distill that into a couple different things, like, well, for, first off, there's safety and security in starting your own business. Um, I think it is a one one idea that is in like people's heads in the U.S., especially people who like graduate from good schools and they go into like the workforce that has been broken in the last year, which is going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. Is that working at like a big tech company? is a safe thing to do. Like the number of people who have been laid off from like big tech and from banks and stuff like that recently is um is incredibly high, right? And so I actually think there's more safety and security in doing something that you own and where you can like manage 100% of the risk. Like you can be the best employee somewhere and if all hell breaks loose and like the company doesn't have a good business model, you can get let go. So I think there's safety and security in doing your own thing. I think there's autonomy, like just the type of, personality that I am. I've never done one of those like Myers-Briggs things, but I'm sure it would say I need my own autonomy. Like I could, I, I would not work well in other companies, I would say. Um, and then I think there's this like need to, I think building a company is also like a very personal growth type of thing. Um, and I think you like you, there's no way BlockWorks can grow if Mike and I don't become better as humans. And I like that it's this forcing function to become a better person. Yeah, and I think in some in a weird sense, and I don't want to like grand, grand, like act like this is some like big world changing idea or that like what I'm doing isn't selfish. But um, there, there, it's almost like being an artist. You know, I joke about it. I'm like, dude, just like give Pablo Picasso like a freaking tuba and he'll make art out of it. Like, and and that's sometimes how I feel about when I'm playing on the internet. Yeah. More MFM in just a minute. First, let me tell you about one of the joys in my life, and that is a virtual assistant. You know, here's the scenario. I'm running my companies. I spend 30% of my time just doing random bullshit. The stuff that has to get done, but it's not creativity. It doesn't require me, and it doesn't add a bunch of value to the business. It's just stuff. And so that stuff is what a virtual assistant does. So having a virtual assistant is a no-brainer, whether it's travel booking, email inbox, or just knocking stuff off your personal to-do list that would have just lingered there forever. I think it's a no-brainer. If you're a business owner, you should definitely do it. I think one of the best places to find an assistant is Shepard. So go to supportshepherd.com. Super affordable. It's something that, um, you know, you don't need to have the biggest business ever be the biggest big shot in order to afford it. So it's amazing. Go to supportshepherd.com, check them out and tell them I sent you. They'll take good care of you if you do that. So supportshepherd.com, check it out. All right, let's get back to the pod. We were talking about like different ideas that you were you were tinkering with, or that you're like different opportunities that you're spotting. What uh, what interests you at the moment? You're not going to go and start anything because you have a full time gig. But is what interests you? I mean, like just crypto right now. I'm like head like just super deep into crypto. I think there are other startup ideas. Like if if someone waved a wand today and said you couldn't go work in you couldn't go work in crypto, um, what would I do? I would probably there's probably two maybe three things 
there's probably two things I would look at that I think are huge opportunities. First off, remember when everyone started creating like the Uber for X, like the Uber for whatever? I think we're about yeah. to see that with um with Beehive actually. What is that? What does that mean? Beehive's this newsletter platform that's just like a ten times better newsletter platform than anything on the market. I know you are friends with the Convert Kit, kit guy, so sorry, to, sorry to him. I like, like Tyler. I like Convert Kit too, or I like uh, Beehive too. I'm also super biased because I'm an investor in Beehive, but like we don't use it yet because it, it'll be enterprise scale soon. But it's more for like the individual creating their their newsletter. All they did is they just had a super deep understanding of newsletters, right? Tyler was, I think, CTO of Morning Brew before this. They just had a super deep understanding, right? Deep domain expertise. And then they just built a really slick UI UX and a really deeply technological, like technologically more powerful platform than anything that exists on the market. And I think you're going to start to see people basically say, hey, Beehive was able to do this in newsletters where there's all these platforms, right? Campaign Monitor, SendGrid, SailThrough, ConvertKit, Substack. And they just did a ten, built a 10 times better product. I think you're going to see people try to do this for other industries. If I were doing it, I would do it for conferences. We have used six different ticketing platforms in six different years at BlockWorks. And it's always been, we like our current one actually kind of a little bit right now. Um, but in the past, it's just been a nightmare to find a ticketing platform. And there's this company called Hopin that uh, was like one of the hottest startups of the year couple of years ago during during COVID. I heard the founder took $100 million in secondary. Yeah, he did. He did. I actually heard it was even more than that. But he... Um, That's insane. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. They raised a $7 billion valuation. They just sold for $15 million. So down from $7 billion to $15 million, And they Wait, sold for Hoppin pennies. just sold? Hoppin sold? Yeah, Hoppin sold for... You should, you should fact check me on this, but I think for $15 million. No Hoppin. way. No way. Yeah, yeah Ring Central... Uh, acquires Hopin events and session products for fifteen million. Holy shit! And the founder took over a hundred million dollars in secondary uh, yeah. funding. Yeah, dude, that's dude, insane, dude. dude. He's yeah, he, he, he won, won that one. Yeah, he did win. That oh one. my god. So, anyways, that's um, that's what I would do. So I think Hopin kind of Hopin could have dominated this market, but they had this stupid thesis that virtual events were going to take over physical events, which was like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And, um, and, and so they failed. But if they had just built a better product for event hosts and conferences, that was just a 10 times better product. That's a, that's a colossal business. That's a shit business. No, it's a good business. No, I don't think it is. I think that like, if you look at Eventbrite, look at their, their market cap. I, I haven't looked at it in forever. I, I'm pretty sure it's been like slow growth. I also think, um, are you looking it up? Let me know what yeah, it I'm says. I also think that um, there's this company called Splash. Do you remember Splash? Splashthat.com. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. I remember. I think they rebranded to Splash. So it was it was great. It was like Eventbrite, but they just made a slicker landing page for cheap or free events. And it was great. It was really fun. I, I created so many events with Splash. I think it was Splash.com. And I have no idea if they still exist. And the problem with them is that most of, or I, I think the problem was, is that most events are like $10 or $40 or something like that. And they could only earn like 3% or 2% or some number like that of the ticket sales. And it seemed like a really small business that raised tens of millions in funding that never came to fruition. Uh, so that's a good, that's a good pushback. I would go enterprise. So the reason I think probably Eventbrite, so the reason Splash that didn't work is because they were trying to sell to like 
random people just setting up events. It was kind of like a party full, if you know, party full now. And then like they were kind of flirting with. with yeah, so many people are using that. I, I don't think that will work. They were kind of flirting with enterprise, but like weren't really doing it. Eventbrite, like their probably cost of support alone is like a total nightmare. Um, just because they have like anyone can go create an event on on on. Uh... You know what? You know what's a better comparison, Sam? Bizabo. I would just go make like a ten times better Bizabo. What's Bizabo? It's an enterprise events platform. It's like it's they sell it like SaaS. It's like twenty k a year, thirty k a year subscription. You host all your platform, your events on them. They don't take a cut of the fee, of the of the ticket sales. I don't think it's just a. But the platform sucks. It's a shit product. Um, but they just dominate the enterprise event space right now. Why are you interested in hair transplants? Uh, the rate of balding in men right now. Uh, the hair transplant, hair transplant space is the one of the fastest growing markets um, in in all of medicine right now. Hold on, I have. I was actually researching this before this. Um, dude, did you ever get LASIK eye surgery? No, I'm afraid to do it. I should do it, but I'm afraid. So. LASIK 20 years ago was this like kind of sketchy thing to do or maybe 25 years ago. And now it is so, the success rate is 99.9%. The costs have come down 95% for a surgery and everybody gets LASIK. It's like a thousand bucks or something like that. But before it was way more expensive and way riskier. And I think you're about to see the same thing happen with hair transplants. And the reason I think it's, so first off the market, market size $5 billion last year projected to reach 30 billion by 2031. So eight years, it's going to go from a $5 billion market to a $30 billion market. That's a compound annual growth rate of 20% year, year over year. The people that you are selling to are the most desperate cohort of individuals, right? Like started losing a little hair on the back of my head. That sucks. Like that is a thing that you don't want, right? So I think, and I think you see this already with hymns and the other one, I forget, Roman or something, whatever the name is. Like, they're selling like fear of balding, basically. And they've been able to create these huge businesses. And I think if you're able to do this, like if you look at the hair transplant market today, it's a bunch of just like, kind of like semi-shady plastic surgeons. Who, like billboard, like, like like billboard having well, like... Billboard, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those kind of people. And like, you have to sign like, these waivers where it's like, you know, like 50 pages of like, I will not sue you is what it sounds like. And I just think there's a, an opportunity to build a better, to build, to build something like that. Can you um, tell me how, so a, a, a thing that before I started Hampton, I was really interested in the research business, particularly data. I screwed this up with trends, man. At the hustle, we had this business called trends. I charged $300 a year. It's really dumb. And I went like fairly broad. We should have just done that before a more narrow niche. And you're one of the few companies, I think, that's going to, a few media company, few media first companies that's going to pull off having a totally non-related income stream to ads. How does their, your research business work? Because I'm, 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 what I've noticed is that there's very little innovation, not innovation, but there's very, there's very few younger people talking about it because it's not very sexy. But if you look at a, a lot of really large companies, for some reason, a lot of them are in England. But there's like a lot of research businesses that are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And they've been doing that for 50 years. But they're so right. big and the founders are dead. And so I like, I'll go and like read the biographies. But I'm like, I don't know even know how you started this damn thing because like it's been lost in 50 years of history. How is how does your what's your research 
business providing the user and how, how do you operate it? How does it work? Basically in crypto, there are these things called protocols like Uniswap and Aave and Compound. And then there's like these layer ones like Ethereum you've probably heard of, Solana, all these other things. The industry is moving from treating these protocols like they're these like weird esoteric things to treating them what like what they are, which is just businesses. So MakerDAO, for example, they'll do 100 million in revenue this year. That is a business. They have like people they pay, like employees and contractors, profits, costs. That is, nobody talks about them like that. So what Blockworks Research does is it's a platform for investors who allocate to crypto assets to basically look at uh, these crypto protocols and look at their user metrics, financials, get research on them. We're very early to trends with what's happening with the protocols. You can look at the governance. So like if you want to look at uh, who's voting on different proposals, if you want to look at like how people are, how people like who are the big stakeholders inside the protocol, you can look at all of that inside the platform. So it's probably not useful to you. It's incredibly useful if you're a crypto fund who alloc- who has like 2% of their portfolio in, in crypto. And and you're getting and so the way that you built like the V1 was did you just go and find like a dozen or something public or private databases and aggregated all of the information into an easier to use way and then do you like write articles on your findings? We started with we started with with research. So what we started with was we just hired analysts and had them write like what feels like almost sell side research on these protocols and we put it behind a paywall. It's super easy. We started with twenty five hundred bucks. I don't know. I don't know what sell side research means. You're using these words, and I don't know what they mean. So I'm going to interpret it as disrespect. It is disrespect. It's uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's like these ten page research reports. (laughs) You got a lot to learn, my friend. (laughs) I don't know fucking anything, dude. (laughs) It's these like ten page reports on like how is something doing. So there'll be what's like. The sell side, you know, so in, in, in finance, there's the no, buy side. I don't know anything, man. You had a family in finance, you know, this shit, man. My dad sold onions for a living. I love onions. So, anyways, we have there's there's like deep research basically on these protocols. So, instead of a news story, which might be a couple hundred words, there's like a 10 page report. Like, here's how we think the asset's going to do. Here's how we think the protocol's going to do. Here's how the last quarter the user metrics looked compared to this quarter. That all went behind a paywall. That's how we launched. Then we did what you're talking about which is we basically just started, there's all these, inside these protocols, they vote publicly on what to do with the protocol. And it's called like forums and proposals. And that's a total pain in the ass to track that. It all happens in like Discord and all the and on these disparate sites. We just super manually scraped all that information, put it into a database, and then built a front end for that and put it behind the paywall. And now we've automated most of these processes. But back then it was just a lot of like, very manual up- uploading. And then um, two weeks ago, we launched our analytics product, which is like the data product, where you can see the user metrics and the financials for any of these protocols. So if you want to look at, hey, what was Ethereum's revenue yesterday? I can tell you that. Hey, what was Ethereum's revenue compared to Solana's revenue yesterday? I can tell you that. User metrics of like this exchange versus this exchange, I can tell you all that. How much did the first product cost to build? Uh, like like a million bucks probably. So we have we have a team of eight analysts and a couple of engineers. And how big do you think this business could get? Just the research side. I think Politico Pro, what, what were they doing? They were doing like 100 million in revenue, weren't they? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Politico sold for a billion. Um, so the reason, yeah, so the reason Politico's business was nice was they had a huge media business, and then about you know point oh one percent of their audience converted into the research platform, and that was called Politico Pro. So yeah, we think. I mean, we think it can get much bigger than that. Um, we think that there's a lot more ad dollars and a lot more research, like subscription money in finance than in politics. So like low end of the spectrum, you've got Politico, they sold for a billion. Bloomberg Terminal is like the super high end, almost like, it's like saying you want to build a Google or an Apple. It's like Bloomberg's one of the best businesses yeah, in the yeah, history yeah. of the world. They'll do like 9 billion in subscription revenue. Um, so that's a crazy business. But somewhere in between, there's like Refinitiv, right? Nobody knows Refinitiv. They're a capital markets information platform. They sold for, I think, 27 billion. Uh, CapIQ, right? FactSet, uh, a lot of, lot of like multi-billion dollar companies just built on the back of basically one asset class, like Bloomberg was just bonds, and then you expand out from there. Are you taking all your personal money, Jason's money from the company and buying crypto right now? So Mike and I don't pay ourselves that much, so we don't, I mean, most of my money is just in Blockworks. Like if Block, like it's just, yeah, I don't, I don't like, I don't have too much money yet. <laughs> but you're heavy on crypto, right? Pers- I mean, of what you're, of, of your liquid portfolio? Of my liquid portfolio, I'm until very recently, I was 100% in crypto. Yeah, you're insane, man. I think that's so stupid. That is insane. Uh, you and my wife, you and my wife agree. So that's not the case anymore. But uh, if it, if it was up to me, I'd be 100% in crypto. Really? Still? Yeah. That's crazy, man. What? Why? I have deep, deep, deep conviction on this industry. Yeah, more conviction than the energy drink. <laughs> Slightly. Yeah, I have deep, <laughs> yeah, deep, deep, deep conviction. And like, I think it's one of the best things to work on for the world. Uh, and I think it's from an allocation perspective, like risk reward perspective, there's no better industry in the world to work in than crypto right now. I was talking to Sean the other day, like through text. I was like, I, my my preferred route for personal finance is just like, his argument is, I was like, well, do you think that I think the trailing 100 years is going to repeat itself? And he, and he kind of is like, well, I, I actually don't believe that. OK, so because I believe it, I think like an 80, 20 of stocks and bonds is the way to go. Um, but what I think is if you have a private company like Blackworks, like I used to, I think it's reasonable to keep most of your liquid money in a in almost mostly bonds or bills or some type of like liquid but low rate of return but safe bet and then you have what's it called the barbell strategy and then you have the rest right. of your money in a high risk thing being your private company your private company i would say is not crazy high risk because it's a profitable business with years of operating history but if i'm in your position i'm or my 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 criticism of of that of that portfolio is you have your liquid money in a high risk bet at the moment and you also have uh, and you also have your private money or your 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 yeah. the majority of your net worth and also a a somewhat high high risk uh thing doesn't that freak you out i know i know you're neurotic like i am how do you go to bed at night like thinking like that don't no it doesn't freak me out i don't i i <laughs> it doesn't freak me out at all and here's one difference you you have money right uh nobody ever got wealthy through diversification. No single person ever got wealthy through diversification. But you are wealthy. It's just not in cash. Your Blackworks is wealth. It may not be cash money, but 
but it is well. It is something. I get that. And then you could make the argument that look, if crypto works, Blockworks is a you know billion, multi-billion, whatever you want to call it, hundreds of million, whatever you want to say, whatever number you want to assign to it. So I'm basically already betting big on crypto. So yeah, put it in put it in equities. That's the reasonable thing to do. I'm I'm not I I think you're probably right. I just am uh it's you know what it is? It's uh it's this cheesy Jeff Bezos regret minimiz- minimalization thing. It's like, you know what would kill me, Sam? If I didn't have any of my personal money in crypto and crypto went the way I think it's going to go, that would, that would like kill me to my bones. You know what wouldn't really like, it would suck, but I would be like, at least I took a bet is if crypto went down another like 90%. Wouldn't phase me at all. I'd be like, you know what? I took a, I took a bet. And and even though, even though I make fun of you, I respect that. I, I think that I, I do respect it. I think you're in a really good. I, I think you, you're no different than the Brett Adcock who we just had on of like who's just like you have an idea, you have a vision, you have a, you think the world's going to go one way, and you're talking, you're talking the talk, and you're walking the walk. And so I, I deeply respect that. I think the good news is is that you're you're such a wonderful entrepreneur that it's gonna everything's gonna be great. Uh, in the grand scheme, um, but I always like to push back on people who uh, yeah. uh, are Dude, there's are this, pretty. It's also just a like the way the world is going. So I probably agree with you about the S and P. Like the S and P will most likely just keep doing what it's doing, and like I say, it's a safe place to go. But like, does any part of you look at what's happening with the world and say like things might be a little different in the future? You ever, do you know who Peter Turchin is? No. Is it wait? Is he? Uh, does he? Does he spell his name funny? Does it actually start with a T? It does. It does. So all right. So Peter Turchin's this historian and mathematician. He developed this field called uh, cleodynamics, and he kind of studies the. You would like him. He's a history guy. Studies like the cycles of cooperation and conflict amongst elites and societies throughout history, and his argument is that periods of internal peace and cooperation are disrupted when the population of elites grows too large. And then competition emerges among them for what is actually these limited elite positions, which then, because there's too many elites and too little positions, that leads to infighting in the elites as they try to maintain their wealth and status. And it causes social instability and a breakdown in cooperation. And it doesn't, historically, that breakdown in cooperation, social instability does not stop until there's a crisis like Something big, right? State collapse, revolution, whatever it may be. And then a new new cycle of cooperation resumes. So I don't know if you tend, like if you look at history, you can kind of, you can see history through the lens of whatever lens you want to see it. There's like the, the fourth turning, which is like these four big periods. And you can explain it like that. There's like this Peter Church and Cleodynamics view. But one thing I believe is like crypto is a better way out of this whole system. So let me give you my argument against that. Cool. I think it could be true, and, and I don't know anything about this guy, but I want to re- I want to learn about what he has, what he thinks. Uh, I know I read a lot of history books, and that's I do it for fun, um, not for like trying to find the answer to this question. But what I've noticed is that when empires cease to be number one, they don't go to not existing oftentimes they just go to being like number five or number seven for example england so or or let's just like look at i just pulled it up i just looked at what the iShares emerging markets etf is for the trailing 
30 years, its compounded annual return is something like 5 or 6% a year. So the reason why I'm, I'm willing to bet over the next 100 years that the trailing 100 years will repeat itself is because if it doesn't repeat itself, it's, not, it's still not going to be that bad. It will go from... So actually, in the last 15 years, I think it's been you know, crazy. I think it's been like 13% a year. I think that if it's not 7 or 8%, it might be 5 or 6 Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I kind of agree with that. It's not going to yeah. go away. It will maybe not be as good, but it's not going to go away. That's kind of my point. That, that's what I believe in. I, I agree with that. I, I agree with that. I think, I think we're on the same page. There. But I, I think that you just... I think, I think it's just far more exciting to read about America ending than it is about the same shit happening over and over again. I don't think America... Yeah, I don't think America is going to end. And I don't think that... Um, this is my problem with kind of like the Bitcoiners, which you're not in like, you don't spend time on crypto Twitter. So you're and you're a lucky man for that. But like the way, the best way for Bitcoin to really work is for the US to collapse. And that is a really shitty v- vision for the future. And um, that's why I like don't align with a lot of like the, the Bitcoiners, I would say. Bitcoin's a good hedge, but like, I don't want Bitcoin to go to a million because the world in which Bitcoin goes to a million is the world in which like civil war is back in the US. So, but, but, a theory, but Ethereum and like what is happening in, in DeFi is a very different vision. And that is a vision that like says, look, these companies that were built in, the, in, the, in Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Apple, they have become far too powerful. The traditional way to, uh, or like what the US thinks is the way to like decrease their powers through regulation. I don't personally believe that that's the way to do that. And I don't think that will work. And I think that the best way to to like build a better future there is through is through crypto. So as we wrap up, tell me the the books and articles that you've read on this topic. Who is that guy? What was his name? Peter Turchin. Okay. And what are the other it sounds like you've read about this. What else is good? Fourth turning is good. How long is that book, dude? I, I can't do read a thousand pages on this topic. What is your current thought on crypto, Sam? Just out of pure curiosity here. And like seeing something like permissionless with like thousands of people walking around, like, do you think that it is a scam? Do you think it's just not going to work? Do you think you're excited about it, but you don't understand it? Like, I'd just be very curious to get your take there. I'm not incredibly well versed. So I will preface anything by saying that like, I'm not, I'm not that well versed in it. But I would say that the major things in the space, like Bitcoin and Ethereum, I, I do, I, I, I enjoy the, uh, I, uh, like the ideology of it. Like I, I respect that, and so I support it. I think that ninety percent of the rest of the stuff is a complete scam. I think NFTs are for the mo- most part total bullshit. I think Web three for the most part is total bullshit, and I think that the people who entered into that space oftentimes are horrible entrepreneurs who are looking for get rich quick schemes. And by slapping a Web3 or an NFT onto it, rather than building a widget that truly solves a problem that people love, that isn't just built to sell to other people in that space. So um, that's what I believe. So I own Ethereum and I own Bitcoin and I like to sit on it and I enjoy the idea that it could exist because I, I, I'm in favor of like the government not controlling certain things. I think it will exist for a very long period of time and will potentially become more useful. But most everything else in the space, I think, is nonsense. Cool. Interesting. 
what do you think? What do you think about that? <laughs> I think you're. Uh, I think you're generally right that there are a lot of like hucksters who come into crypto, and that was probably true two years ago. Anyone who's still in crypto is is not a scam artist. Um, it's too that no one no one operating in a market that's ninety percent down trying to scam people. Um, but two years ago, generally the same. And I think like you love history. You read all the same history books that I do. Like you, there are a lot of parallels to new industries, right? Whether it's like all the scammers coming into the oil industry, right? In like the 1870s, like very similar because there's get rich quick money. Trying to, in, into the railroad industry, same thing, get rich yeah. quick money. Into the car, uh, into the electricity industry, into the car industry, like basically 90% of people who came into those industries, they were scammers. Um, and I think that, America, because we're talking super macros, like America is probably the most optimistic country in the world. And that leads to frauds. And you can't have one without the other. So like in places where they're not optimistic, they don't have frauds. They also don't have companies that get built. So I think those are like, you can't have best part about someone is also the worst part about someone. One and the same. I think the worst part about crypto is that the people who were selling bullshit social media consultancies or agencies, then the they got into go like into crypto. I agree. I agree. And now they're an AI. Now they're an AI. And now like, they're in, and now they're an AI. And I think it's that's yeah. bad for that industry. It's like being a presidential candidate and like the KKK scene being like being like, oh, we love you. You'd be like, no, no, no. Get the hell no, out of here. You know what I mean? No, that's like no, what it's yeah, like. It's, yeah. It is like, it's like we're like, I don't no, want to be associated get out of here. I, yeah. So I think that's been quite bad uh, for the crypto industry in this in the yeah. same way. Yeah, it is AI now. But that, that that's kind of my opinion. Um, I agree. What's your plug? Blockworks research. Yano on Twitter. What are you what are you doing? Yeah. Yano on Twitter. Um, we got blockworksresearch.com. I have a podcast. We have eight eight crypto podcasts at Blockworks. So if you like crypto podcasts, go to, you know, we got a bunch. I host one called Empire. That's the plug. Come to our conferences. Das London coming up March 2024, going across the pond. Well, I appreciate you coming on. That's the pod. That's the pod. Yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. I put my all in it like no days off. On a road, let's travel, never looking back. Like-